Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Rob Manus Show Live. Uh, can we save children from poverty in the poorest areas in America? This week's show features Louisiana 2nd Congressional District candidate Claston Bernard. Since the election is on March 20th, 2021, to replace Democrat Cedric Richmond, we don't have much time, so we're going to need everybody to put their shoulders to the wheel and help Claston get out the vote and get people to those polls. I know you're going to ask why we would support a Republican in this D-plus-25 district. Well, first, CD2 in Louisiana is one of the poorest in the country. Nearly 40% of all children in the district are living in poverty every single day. And what has been being done by Democrat politicians in that district just is not working. I ask you to hear Mr. Bernard out today, and you'll see why this man deserves and should get our support. He's a legal immigrant, an Olympian athlete and champion, a strong family man, and believes so much in America because he has lived our dream. He knows in his heart and mind all citizens must be empowered to reach their full potential, and government policies are failing them, especially the Democrat Party's favorite, the welfare state that has destroyed the black family since the mid-1960s. This race is entirely winnable, folks, and the first step is to get Claston Bernard past the primary and into a runoff. So without further ado, Mr. Claston Bernard, welcome to the Rob Mana Show. How hey. are you, Claston? Hey, Rob. I am doing well. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, uh, good to have you on with us. I know you are very busy trying to hit that district and get as many voters as you can out. Uh, but I, ha I have to ask, uh, let me just tell the viewers, hey, this is our second candidate uh, in the, uh, the, the effort to retake Congress with Republicans. Uh, and Claston, uh, uh, I have read his book, uh, and he is a, a phenomenal individual. Uh, and most importantly, he's an honest, real human being and has a real family that understands the real the real problems of the rest of the real families that are out here in America, especially in the second district. So Claston, just take a few minutes and introduce yourself to folks. Uh, a lot of Louisianans I know are watching uh, the show. They do every time we're on and we appreciate having them on. Well, you know, um, I'm from Jamaica, you know, grew up in Jamaica. Um, in a two-bedroom home you know no electricity no running water now that was somewhat by choice because my great-grandfather told my dad that the way to change your children's education is um, life is through education and my dad set out to do that you know he was a builder but he forgo wanting to have a nicer house with all the amenities to make sure we had the best education money could buy. So with that, I ended up in one of the best schools in Jamaica, really good school, all boys school, that was designed for gifted poor boys growing up in Jamaica. But by the time I got to the school, it was more a school of affluence. You had to have a whole lot of money, or you had to, if you didn't have a lot of money, you had to sacrifice a lot of money to get there. But the reality was coming from where they were, it didn't 
it didn't deter my dad to say, you know what, these are my responsibilities. I am going to make sure I do what was necessary to make sure they succeed in life. So while I was in college, I always enjoyed reading. I wanted to go to university, but I didn't know how I could go to university. I didn't know how I would pay for it. I knew university was, in, it was expensive. So um, I think about 1993, 94, a guy from my, my high school got an athletic scholarship to U, University of UT Arlington. Yeah, that's, yeah, UT Arlington. And I said, what? He had a track scholarship to study engineering to UT Arlington? I said, that's what I want to do. And it's around that time I read Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands. A friend of mine whose dad was a doctor gave me that book. He knew I loved to read. And Ben's life was so much like mine. I'm like, wow, this is America. And look at what this guy had to go through to get where he, he is, you know, so... That was very inspirational, and just reading his book just kind of just was a catalyst to just put my shoulder to the wheel, develop my athletic talent, and just push on through. And I ended up becoming a phenomenal athlete. By the time I became a senior in high school, I had 20-something scholarship offers. 1997, I, um, I had five visits. That's I had incredible. five visits. Yes. <laughs> I had five visits. Um, in 1997, and the one was LSU, the next was Auburn, Nebraska, Wyoming, and I think Bethune Cookman. So I said, hey, you know what? LSU was the first stop. I came to LSU in April 1997, and I fell in love with Baton Rouge. I fell in love with, with LSU. The climate that day, too, it was gorgeous, man. It was a beautiful day. So I was like, hey, this is it. Plus, they had really good athletes. So, you know, my journey to LSU, I ended up, you know, coming to LSU, had a very successful track and field career. Won four SEC titles, won the NCAAs, made two Olympic Games, and I won the Commonwealth, um, Commonwealth Games gold medal in 2002. And um, the Commonwealth Games is the second largest um, Olympic-type event outside of the Olympic Games. So from there, while I was um, still competing professionally, I was selling life insurance, and I was doing continuing ed class for life insurance, and they had an advertisement for building inspection, and so I said, oh, you can become a building inspector. I said, yeah, hmm. you know, I grew up around building. My dad's a builder. I love that. I said, you know, I'm pursue that because that's what I love. I enjoy that kind of stuff, so I started pursuing that while I was competing. And just developed that, learned that, and did everything that I could do to, to, to better my skills. You know, so by the time, you know, by the time track and field wound down because of injury, you know, I was doing that. Um, you know, I had a building inspection company going, and I was able to just start exploring life. You know, started living life, transitioning to, to America. You know, one of the aspects of what I do was federal properties. I started doing federal properties, so I was traveling all over the country. So I started seeing America up close, more yeah. ways than one, working in a lot of public um, housing environment, a lot of major cities, and what I started seeing was quite disturbing. I remember one property I went to, and there was a lady there. She was in her 70s, beautiful black lady, and um, so such a sweet person. And she said to me, she said, I've been living here for like 53 years. 
And I wow. looked at her. I was like, but what she said after that was, my children, my son, my, my daughter lives here. My son live, live here. And my, grand, my grandchildren live here. And I was like, that is not creating generational wealth. That is not that is not what you want. Yes, you want people to get help when it's when it's needed, but you don't want to lose generation into government welfare. But exactly one of right. the other, yeah. So one of the things that even took it further, I was in Savannah, Georgia, working, and I saw beautiful girls, young girls. I think 15 through 18. I think the 18 year old probably had four children, and I'm like, what's going on? You know, this is just not right. This is just, this just wasn't, you know. So, you know, I started traveling the country and I realized this was affecting many different races. Native American Indians, pretty bad. Um, yeah, Hispanic Americans, yeah. white Americans. The welfare state is devastating. It's, it, 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 it belittles people. And there are good people who work in these, uh, on these properties. Very, very good people. Very nice people. But the reality is some of the, some of these people who are trapped there end up becoming like children. And they do, some people do treat them like children. So for me, I saw an America that I didn't like. And I saw, I know from what I know about history, you know, socialist programs are devastating on economies and countries. Yeah. So, you know, I've always been, you know, I like to write in journal when I was traveling and different things like that. So from, my courses in history at LSU and I, you know, I just love reading history. So I've just been collecting books after books, Western civilization and, you know, um, black history, um, whatever you want to, history you want to talk about, American history. And from what I saw from American history and just reading the constitution, I recognize that this country has a lot that is not being emphasized anymore. We're not talking about the obstacles that we have overcome. We're talking about oppression. You know, whenever we talk about slavery, we talk about slavery. Not that slavery is no longer here, but yes, most any American would probably say it was a flaw. It was an ugly mm -hmm. stain on, on, in, in America. I agree. You know, it's terrible. Uh, yes, it is. You know, we're not talking about those things. We're not talking about people like men like Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington. You know, they always like to talk about, you know, some of the founders and saying the founders were um, not good people, but they gave us something very special. They gave us a constitution. They gave us a brilliant um, declaration of independence. But the pieces that formed this country's government was being eroded by what I was seeing around the country. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to just put that together. And uh, I tell you what. You know, I end up writing a book called Outcast, No Room at the Table for Conservative Blacks in Black America, because I would yeah. question people, I would ask them about why are things this way, and they would quickly point to slavery or Jim Crow. And I'm like, that can't be the answer to everything that we're seeing. So just digging into the history, I started recognizing that even during slavery, the black family was intact. During Jim Crow, the black family was intact. So the change started happening when the government started playing a more active role in providing welfare to black Americans. But no one even look at the, the um, Native American Indians. They've been on welfare for hundreds of years. 
and their situation is very bad. No one is talking about that. So even though right now we're seeing the destruction of the black family, the Native American communities, they have been decimated really, you know, really badly from these kind of system and programs in place. So for me, I wanted to connect. I wanted to see what was what was great about America. And then you go back to 1620. And you go back to 1620, you saw the pil pilgrims come in here and what they when they came, they they came against great obstacles. But they wanted to be able to worship God. They wanted to be able to have their own community. They wanted to be able to have their own system of government and they also wanted to be able to have, you know, a good education system. Now, the thesis for American founding was planted that day when they came aboard in December, um, um, came on land in December um, 1620. Mm -hmm. It was captured in 1776. And in 1776, they put together what needed to end the injustice system of the old world of slavery. Slavery was an economic system that the whole world was practicing. America's formation basically was the death knell to slavery because America put in place a system that recognized us all as created equal and slavery conflicted with the Declaration of Independence and also the principles laid out in the U.S. Constitution. Now, back to what the pilgrims, the pilgrims wanted to be able to worship freely. They held dearly to their faith. They held dearly to God. They held dearly to family. During slavery, blacks that were enslaved, that's all, they had God, family, and whatever education they could learn again, they would hold on to it. But that was all that they had to hold on to. They didn't have much else to do, but it kept them together. Because even when they try to strip the blacks of their humanity because they held dearly to their family, God and family, they could not do it. So after the Civil War, which cost us dearly, sure did. Slaves, slaves, within 50 years after the Civil War, slaves, 50% of the slave population became literate. And what was the, 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 the source of that, the main source of that was the church. The church played an active role. The black church, because there were a lot of things that were still going on to, to the freed blacks. You know, they had black codes, they have the KKK, the white league. They had all these kind of um, system that came about that was trying to, to destabilize the, the, the black race. But the yeah, church we just, was we a, just did away with a with a part of that system of, uh, two years ago when we we uh, we repealed the non-unanimous juries uh, yes. here in Louisiana. That yes. was part of the yes. Constitution that was put in in 1897, I believe. Originally, it was part of that that whole effort after the Civil War, wasn't it? To 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 take that black population that had gotten literate and elected to office as Republicans, right? Yes. If I remember correctly, uh, and then and yes. suppress that population, uh, but even that didn't hurt the family. Uh, the family of the of the black community wasn't really hurt uh, at that much from that perspective when you compare it to what happened in the nineteen sixties to today. Is that right? If I understood yes. you correctly. Class? Yes. 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 Because during slavery, up to eighty percent of blacks were married. After slavery ended, those families that were broken apart. 
they did they searched high and low to reunite they did everything they could do to reunite as a family but they made yeah. education their focus they made um skills. booker t washington created the tuskegee um, um university and his focus was to to, em, to employ skill-based sets because with this with the proper skill and if you're good at what you do anybody would employ you because people are looking for competent um individuals to work for them and it was a success but we've gotten away from booker t's washington's dream and we've embraced this dream that continued to push these um what you liberal arts degree and some of these degrees that are actually useless to to being able to provide for a family and i'm saying everything has a place and time but just to go to college to get a degree and come out making fifteen thousand hours is a waste of time for me and frankly a waste you know running up um debt so the pieces to to what worked in this country were we've already seen now here we are congressional district two district the fourth the fourth worst district in the country. that's one incredible. of the worst that's incredible to know that uh because i i know a lot of folks that live in that district that are extremely talented hard-working people but it but they it's are. incredible to know that yes so when you look at that you say oh, okay but then you look at the numbers you said 5.1% of married couples in that district live below the poverty level. 21% of female head of household is below the poverty level. Right there, you see a glaring discrepancy. Yeah. So sure. right there, you see a solution. Marriage. Marriage is a solution. Yeah, I noticed on your website one of your tenets is uh, is family, uh, not not just but but I've heard you talk about it. So explain to folks what you mean by that a little bit in depth uh, uh, and how it relates to the foundation uh, of uh, uh, the maintaining a foundation with God piece of your platform that's on your website. Well, the family is the first institution ever created by God. You cannot have a government without the family. So, you know, one of the things I, I, I say a lot is that the, the government is inferior to the family. So with the family being the first institution, it is the strength of the society. It's the, it's, the family is responsible for your, 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 your spiritual well-being, your health, and your economic well-being, not the government. The government also does not get to um, define life, liberty, and property. Those things are above the government those are what god gave to us those things are um self-evident there are certain things that is so the family is important now when you move away when you start encouraging policies that will destroy or pull the family apart you're going to suffer and it's not saying that their single persons or single mothers aren't able to do and, and do well and do exceedingly well but we were created to work as a unit. And when we're not working as a unit, we tend to suffer. And even if you're making money as a single mother, your son or your daughter still is probably missing something. They're missing that other piece, that other part of the puzzle that is supposed to work. You know? So family is, is the security. It's, it's the financial security. It's the economic security that, that is society is vested in. 
It, it, isn't the family, uh, and I've heard you say this before, but I want the folks in, in the audience to hear it. Uh, the family is an institution, right? That's the first institution, isn't it? Yes. It's the first institution ever created by God. That's it. That's it is the most, it's the most important institution we have as a society, not the government. It's not about being a Republican or Democrat. It is the family. You, if you are a true conservative, if you truly care about this country, is the first, your first responsibility is to God, family. That's the, your first responsibility, not to government. That's right. And because we've gotten that wrong, we are where we are today, and we are on, we're on the way to destruction and to serfdom. Because we're trying to recreate what God ha has already given to us, perfect. Yeah. So, from a policy perspective, Claston, uh, when you get into office, and I say when because I believe you'll be in Congress someday, uh, sooner, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, so I firmly believe that when you get into office, I know two two of the biggest policies you want to challenge uh, or actually uh, create new policies to replace ones that are especially in places like District 2 in Louisiana uh, are revolve around education and economics. Uh, go through the education piece for the folks and I'll just remind everybody in the audience that uh, we can see your comments so we'll, later in the program after class gets through these couple of questions uh, we're going to address your comments or questions if you have any uh, for him or for me. And uh, we appreciate you guys watching today. So, Claston, walk us through uh, what your thoughts are and what your proposals are going to be to fix the, uh, the education system and then the economics piece of it, uh, of, of life uh, in this district for folks that are in pain every day. You know, um, I, I say this. Education is one of the best ways out of poverty. And I'll say this. Um, it is not out of reach for any American. Now, in Congressional District 2, we need more choices. Now, I know New Orleans have the, um, the school choice program, but you know, I'm, I'm a little more radical in, in what I'm looking at. We need to just go ahead and privatize all the school systems, make them compete against each other. You know, money should follow the students, not institution. We have to start doing those things. We have to advocate that the power goes back to the family, to the family, their family, the family. And I will keep saying that because the family makes better decision than the government. They will be able to make better decision than myself. I'm, go I'm trying to advocate for them to have policies that will benefit them. So we need to, we need to open up the education market. You should not be trapped by a zip code. The money should follow you to wherever you want to go. Now, in addition to that, my after-school education program, I want kids to be able to, between 6 and 17-year-old, if they want to learn dancing, if they want to learn swimming, horseback riding, basketball, gymnastic, they want to do pipe fitting, plumbing, electrical, um, whatever skill, coding, pilot, whatever they need to learn to develop and to broaden their horizon. So by the time they become um, a senior in high school, they have a solid vocation um, to work and not having to go to college. And they can sit there and build up some money and not having to be trapped in you know, student loans. I would like to be able to give them that opportunity because that's one way to be able to create wealth. 
the, the other option is that if you want to go to um, college, you might, you might be able to take those courses you are struggling. If someone offering an after-school program in math, in, in geography, in, in history, in chemistry, in biology, those programs are designed to help students become better. You know, because it, again, the key is that you have to you have to be, get married, stay married, finish high school with a viable skill. That is, those are two, those are two prescriptions to be successful and to move out of poverty. And the statistics are there to show that it, it says marriages reduces um, poverty as much as eighty percent. Having the right skill, even without going to college, is going to help you um, be more employable. So, you know, so the educational aspect, again, even with that, economic-wise, there's 122,000 students, um, kids, in Congressional District. So my um, after-school education program would be um, $300 a, a month. That's $3,600 a year for each parent. That's about $75 million, almost a half a billion dollars coming into the local economy. Yeah. And that means now churches that have been established, organizations that have been established for three or four years, they're able to offer those programs. Those programs, they can find those through their school database system. Some of these programs will be able to advertise. They'll be able to, you know, to get out there. So for any and anybody just can't be able to get into the program. If you're offering the program, you will have to have background checks. You know, whoever's offering this program has to be vetted. Now, that will help reduce the incidence of fraud. You know, kickbacks, you know, you have to have attendance records, different stuff like that. You have to try to find ways to, to, to cut down on the fraud. But in the long run, you will have a more productive members because the role of education is to make students and children productive members of society. It is not so to this, indoctrinate them. So this funding would come from uh, the federal government through the Department of Education? No. The federal I want to partner. No, I want to partner with private companies to help reduce their tax burden. So if you have a $5 million or $10 million tax, um, tax burden, or if you contribute a $5 million, if your company contribute $5 million to this program, then you get that $5 million in tax tax um, credit. Okay. Tax credit. But it's going, I want it going from the company to the programs. All right. Yes, so they're the oversight. Corporate partnerships yes, corporate, uh, yes, yes. With, with tax incentives. That, that, that makes sense. Uh, yes. That, that makes very good sense. Because uh, I, I know a lot of folks... Uh, uh, that uh, I talked to really question why the Federal Department of Education exists. We've spent billions of dollars since 1970 when it was uh, the 70s when it was created and, and uh, the performance of the kids keeps dropping. It doesn't ever increase uh, and the, except for the money that we spend on it uh, keeps increasing and I'd like to see that money be given back to the states and to the students really and their parents. Uh, and I know a lot of folks agree with that. I think you agree with that too, don't you? Yes. Well, you have to look at it. There are people with vested interests. You know, you have to give the power back to the parents. You have to give it back to the parents. It is not the role of the government. Like I said, the family is upstream. You can't take away the responsibility from the family. Bureaucrats then take over. 
That's right. That's right. The more bureaucrats are involved, the less effective uh, yes. the outcomes are that we reach them. And we see that every day in, in various things, not just education. Uh, here, here's a question from one of our viewers is, where can I get his book? I like what he says. And I believe this viewer is from within your congressional district. My book is available on Amazon.com. You can look up Outcast, No Room at the Table for Conservative Blacks in Black America. There are, there are other books on there. Also, but um, I'm taking it that you're asking about. I'll well, thank you very much, uh, Claston. Now, well, what about uh, from an economic perspective? Uh, uh, you know, education is key, the family is key, uh, but economics and the programs that have come out of the federal government uh, at, at various times since the 1960s all sounded great. But when I look back at the history, I've studied history in the in the 19. 50s and, and from 1900 to the 1950s and the numbers from a from a, a data perspective show that the black family uh, was much more prosperous and the whole idea behind America as you've said many times uh, is is prosperity for all because we're all created equal really essentially uh, and we have certain unalienable rights and and I see the federal government and a lot of other people do too uh, see the federal government as going so far away from those concepts that they've actually broken uh, the black family and are on the, on the path to break other families of persons of color like the Hispanic community if we don't change these policies and turn things around uh, for folks so that they have the opportunity to achieve the prosperity that you have, that I have, uh, because it, that is the critically important piece to one of the things, one of the big issues in this country that I think is the root of all kinds of problems that people say they want to solve. You know, um, the, the minimum wage law is anti-black. And I will say that over and over. When the minimum wage first came about, it was to keep black um, construction workers out of the workforce. In a free market system, there's no reason to have a minimum wage. In a socialist system, there's need for minimum wage. But in a free market system, you want people to understand that the more skill sets you acquire, the more you will make. It's just like in sports. The better you become, the more money you acquire. It, it, Bill Gates, he deserves the money he makes um, for Microsoft because people value what he created. Jeff Bezos, people value the things that they create. So there has to be incentives and um, for people to be able to, to prosper. When you put a minimum wage in, you automatically disqualify a number of people. So we need to get rid of laws that actually just continue to, ex um, to make the situation worse. So economically, we have to start looking at, again, the federal government role should not be the, the facilitator as to who makes what, their goal is supposed to be limited. The free market system works. Yes, we can talk about the crooks, we can talk about the cronies, but we have prisons for that. You know, 
that's why we have prisons. And sometimes, you know, we need to make sure those people are, are, are trying to skate around, are trying to take, take advantage of people are taking care of. But the best system is a free market system. And, and that's the, the thing about it. Even, even when they had the, the minimum wage laws, or they have these, even during Jim Crow, there were people like in the sharecropping share industry that still went out and hired blacks because they could hire black at a lower earn. And, and guess what? So there are always there are ways when you create these laws, people find ways around them. Yeah. So to so begin with, we don't need it because that's why the illegal immigrants come here and they're able to work um, below minimum wage to the detriment of the people that these politicians say they are trying to help. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems so simple, you know, uh, that we, could, we should be able to easily change or repeal these policies and focus on things that actually do work. I know, uh, I know that you and I have talked about uh, the economic opportunity zones that Senator Tim Scott and President Trump uh, advocated for, and, are, and uh, it still exists. Uh, and that's really based on a concept that I read about uh, from uh, a senator from New York a long time ago. I think he was from a senator from New York named Robert F. Kennedy uh, that actually tried a program similar to that in, in one of the black communities uh, in the outlying area of New York City. And it worked. You know, yes, it, it worked. You get you gave incentives for entrepreneurs and investors to uh, to invest in small businesses in, a, in an underserved community. And you had small business owners that actually lived in the community that wanted to be successful. Uh, uh, you know, and, and of course, that that uh, that uh, made its way down to the family and the children who grew up in in solid homes and uh, were able to get in good schools and and be prosperous. Now, this was years ago, uh, and now we have these economic opportunity zones uh, that sounds like a really good way to get away from the welfare state policies and back to a policy of prosperity, especially for these underserved communities. And I know it's not just black communities, because you told me a story about uh, a government housing project that was filled with white folks that you yes. uh, did a building yes. inspection on that before. Was, yes. but, but in CD2, it is the black community that, yes. that is, I mean, f almost 40% of African-American children in CD2 are at, uh, below the poverty level. So, yes. Uh, so there, I know why you're wanting to get to that, but, but how, does, how will that work and what will you do to, to uh, change, to get away from a welfare system that hurts the families and into a system like economic opportunity zones? Well, even with the, again, incentivize people getting married. You know, in, in Poland, I think um, the government is making it um, a priority to incentivize people to get married, stay married, and have children. You get a bonus with each child that you have for being married. And, you know, so we need to, those things help, you know, so we can, that's, that's, that's a radical plan. You know, I'd love to see that. It is. Incentivize, you know, cut down, because the, the fact is, even with divorces, um, there's incentives for divorces in this country. There are incentives for child custody battles. Why not just turn that around? Why not incentivize people to stay together? Incentivize yeah. people to have, you know, build that. Yes, the, the opportunity zone, we, they're necessary. You know, and, you know, there are a lot of concerns, some of the black, you know, some, and, and rightfully so, um, some of the blacks in the community, they, they, they'll say, you know what, we're still not the beneficiary 
of um, these opportunity zones. Well, you know, we, we need to create a system that reward them, that is able to give them loan, you know, to give them, which is what President Trump was trying to do, um, to, to provide them access to capital to be able to invest in these, um, in these opportunities. You know, they need to make that accessible to them. That's what we need to do. We need to make money accessible, you know, but even further than that, there, we have the oil industry, we have the tourism industry, you know, we have, um, you know, companies mm -hmm. that, that is struggling, you know, down to 50% their capacity. And look at the history that we have in Louisiana. That shouldn't be. You know, we, we, we need to create opportunities for these companies. We need to create more. And, and, and with having these opportunity zones, with having a vibrant economy, people are able to mobilize more. You know, we're able to utilize the, the resources that we have. You know, so the more you, we, we will be able to attract more people into our community from out of state with business opportunities. We need to deal with, we need to um, cut down the burden of occupational licensing. That affects black Americans disproportionately. Certainly no one does. talks about that. Certainly so so Certainly that does. is one thing we have to create. We have to lower the, the barriers to entry because to earn a living right of every man, not to something, but to earn a living, he has to go earn. I'm, I'm emphasizing earn is the right of every man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, I think that's, I think you're right on the target, to be honest with you, Claston. Uh, you know, it's uh, like you mentioned about the, the $15 minimum wage. It destroys jobs. I think then the latest number from the CBOs is 1.6 million jobs that it will uh, destroy. Uh, and uh, it, you know, that doesn't do anything to help the folks that the, the, the people that are behind such a policy say they want to help. Uh, and, yeah. and that's the issue. And, I, and that's why I think you're such a strong candidate is is that, you know, the policies that they've said we're supposed to help aren't doing that. They're having the opposite effect. And, and we've seen decades of data to show uh, and outcomes to show that it has the opposite effect. And it's created challenges for us, like the need for criminal justice reform, because, you know, there's this guy that uh that is in the white house that i think authored the 1994 crime, 94 bill, crime bill that resulted yes. in people like you and me and and uh my friends that are democrats on the other side of the aisle having to come together and do criminal justice reform especially in states like louisiana to make sure that the criminals are in jail that should be in jail and the folks that have been uh destroyed by a system that was slanted against them uh need to be looked at again and make sure that they have the opportunity to correct their mistakes in their lives. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, comments here that I want to take to you, Claston. Uh, here's one. Oh my God, I literally just said that yesterday about the occupational licensing. Claston, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't hear from. Yeah, the comment was about. Uh, oh my God, I just said that yesterday about the occupational licensing, and there's another one that the state is uh, uh, the state. The state is ridiculous in their licensing requirements. I know I've I've worked with state legislatures and ran on, a, on one of my planks and my platforms that I've run uh, for office on 
has been to uh, eliminate as much occupational licensing as possible because it's a barrier to entry for entrepreneurs and small business owners. And most of the jobs in this country are created by small businesses and will continue to be so even when uh, we get out of this stupid pandemic that we're in, don't you think? Think about this. Somebody, someone who's a good carpenter wants to start a business and he's been red tape left, right and center. Left, you know, you're a barber, you want to, and you're a good company here and you you just can't get in the trade. You have to be an apprentice, which is okay. But at this end of the day, you need opportunities. There are people who, they have families to feed. They have mouth to feed. And when you're telling someone, someone say who even had a, um, a you know, a tough past, maybe have a, you know, you know, a criminal record, can't really get into certain industries. They've turned their lives around. They're looking for opportunities, but they have a skill that they can offer. But yeah. they don't have the money to pay for occupational licensing. That is unfair. You know, it's not only unfair, we, it keeps them from getting into the that occupation. Uh, yes. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's more than unfair. It's 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 really despicable uh, that it does that because that that's government picking winners and losers. Because the people that are already in, they create these boards, and the government establishes these boards of, uh, of licensing and all that, and then they make the requirements. It's so so uh, drastic that your your young man or woman just starting out or, or trying to get their life back together because they've been reconciled and and recovered from uh, you know breaking the law or some other th- issue like addiction yes. and those kind of things can't do it uh, and, and we've got to, we've got to eliminate those uh, and uh, that's one another reason why I'm excited about your candidacy let's see here uh, we'll get another another comment here the government. The government takes enough in taxes to take care of Americans in America, but they don't. They give it away to other countries and themselves while we fight to survive. Politicians are crooks. Tell folks, you know, where you're at from the perspective of uh, foreign aid uh, and uh, national security uh, and those kind of things to protect our tax dollars so that, you know, tax dollars should primarily come back to the citizens, especially in the the area of, you know, education and, uh, you know, economics and prosperity and those kind of things. And we keep seeing, you know, I mean, I think President Biden just authorized $4 billion to go for vaccines for other countries. And we don't have our folks all vaccinated yet. We don't even have the highest at-risk groups 100% vaccinated yet. We, we not, we're, we're not even at herd immunity yet. You know, we have to be like 60 or 70%, I think 70% to be at herd immunity. You know, here's the thing. America America has done great things around this world. America is a beacon of hope to a lot of countries in the world. But, you know, one of yeah. the things, um, people, sometimes it sounds harsh, but when you do for people who are not ready to fight for something or to do for themselves, you make the situation worse. And that is sometimes a situation we create. It's not saying some of those people don't make use of what America has done for them. But the, the, the problem, that's part of the problem with the the, the the federal government, the executive, it's become too big. You know, it has actually is forgotten why it's there. You know, the federal government role is supposed to be limited. It's supposed to be foreign and domestic trade, um, defense, um, securing all borders, making sure, you know, um, this post office. That's basically the role of the federal government to begin with. So 
when we're sending money or sending abortion money to kill babies overseas, you know, and other programs, who are we helping? Why are we doing that? Why would we be sending money overseas to kill babies? You know, when there, there are things we could do here, there are infrastructures that are crumbling. I'd like to see even in, in CD2, I'd like to see some bridges built. You know, I would like to see Louisiana more connected roadways. I'd like to see an underwater tunnel in Louisiana to, yeah, to help just, ease the traffic. Uh, I, I just lost my sixth windshield on my truck uh, just yesterday uh, uh, when I was driving in Louisiana. It now has a nine-inch crack across it because of a rock and every other windshield I ever put into my yes. truck. Uh, uh, and I'm laughing and chuckling because it's kind of a funny story, but it matches up with what you're saying, you know, uh, we need to be focused more on Americans. Uh, and some people call it America first. Some people uh, just just think that that's what America's government should be doing as a priority. And then and then we could do those other great things, too. Uh, you know, but after the American people's priorities are satisfied uh, and only after that, don't you think? Yes, it is actually criminal. It is actually criminal to see this situation of some Americans. And instead of in incentivizing them to get out of that situation, we're leaving them there for block voting. Yeah. We're leaving there, them there so we, can, can, we have a sense of control. It is criminal. And then we're pretending to think that we care about other countries. How can you care about other countries when you have district like, like we do, like congressional district too? That's right. Are you familiar with Cancer Alley? I have heard that term before, but I have also known from that that wasn't actually factual. Yes, um, there are things that happen, and there are things that we have to make sure we maintain the environment. But I do know we're not. The science doesn't show that we're um, we're the Cancer Alley, as they'd like to say. It sounds good, and it sells. And the environmentalists, you know, they're always driven by fear. They use fear in a lot of things. Just with the whole, it was a um, the freeze in the 70s, then global warming, and then now it's climate change and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, there are things in the, in the environment, but how, you know, we have to educate people really on, on the dangers of stuff, you know, and without trying to scare them. You know, yeah. and, um, you know, then we do know, you know, there are chemical plants, in, you know, where we are. So we have to be mindful of, as to how, you know, we, we operate them. But at the same time, they create economic opportunities for people. So, exactly. you know, what is the other option? What's the, what's the additional option? You know, well, what are you give proposing? You an opportunity to, to address that because there's one of the comments and I appreciate that. I mean, it's common sense. You know, we, we've got to make sure that companies are doing the right thing uh, by the environment and the right thing by their employees. If they get sick based on materials they've been handling and if they have an impact, uh, you know, if those chemicals have an impact on the neighborhoods and those kind of things, uh, we just got to make sure that they're uh, required to do the right thing. Uh, yes. Because it is very important to keep the companies in there to provide job opportunities for all of us, but at the same time, make sure the folks uh, that are impacted We're, by that are taken care are of. Safe. Here, yes. here's, here's another one. Uh, uh, this was a viewer must have come in late after the introduction. I hope you run for office, uh, uh, and I hope you'll stand up to both liberals and the rhinos. Please don't change from Rebecca Webb. I appreciate it, Rebecca. Thank you very much. 
uh, for Thank that uh, class. Tell people again, uh, because we're not quite finished yet. Tell people again what you're running, where you're running in, uh, uh, and uh, how they can find you on the web. I'm running for Congress in um, Congressional District 2. You can find more information about me at BernardForCongress.com. My, my ballot number is number three. So whenever you guys go out and vote, vote number three, you can find my books on Amazon.com, Outcast, No Room at the Table for Conservative Blacks. Also, I was born a winner, and whose voice do we hear? It's a Christian book. So um, I, I, again, I'm going to ask you guys, hey, we need to do some things differently. It hasn't been working in Congressional District 2. It is just, you know, if you have a bad coach, you get rid of that coach. Yep. Okay? Likewise, I, I am here to fight for this um, district. I'm here to fight for my state. My state made me a champion. I want to champion Congressional District 2 in Washington, D.C., you know, it sounds good to hear that we're at the back of the pack. But as a, as a former athlete, I don't like to be at the back of the pack. I like to lead from the front. And I want to take Congressional District 2 to the front of the pack and maintain it. That's why I'm yeah. running for Congress. That's why I have confidence that you guys will make me your next congressman. See, you, folks. That's why you need to help this man and his family uh, get into Congress so they can help us. You know, we've got to have folks that are not career politicians that are that are that are devoted to the idea of America. And, and here's another one for you, Claston. Uh, what do you say to the folks that go, ah, America was founded on slavery. They did the three fifths thing in the Constitution. You keep talking about that. Uh, it's terrible. It doesn't work for me because I'm you know, whatever, brown, yellow, black, uh, uh, you know, uh, transgender, LGBTQ, any of those things. What do you say to those kind of folks? The American dream is accessible to anyone in this country. Slavery was an ugly stain in this country's history, but it doesn't define us. We have overcome many obstacles in this country. The Constitution, I, I would implore those who keep saying the Constitution considered blacks three-fifths of a human to really read the text. It was talking about whole numbers. Said three-fifths, 60% of the slave population, three-fifths, 60% of the slave population would count towards voting. Otherwise, the South would have had full control of Congress, making sure that slavery would not end in America. We need to clear that narrative up. Now, I know there were some, some court cases that tried to um, use that to keep and dehumanize blacks. But the reality is the truth won out in the end. Like I've said, um, I've said it many times, scientifically, biblically, God's image is on us. Scientifically, we're genetically, we're 99.98% similar genetically. We're only 0.012% different. So the basis of what they were saying doesn't hold weight scientifically. And the founders of this country were brilliant men. They were not that stupid. So I, I implore people who continue to, to make this statement to read the text. Um, I would want to say um, it was the Article 1, Section 2 or something like that. I'm, I'm not sure. But 
that that they claim that it was some, somehow blacks were three fifths of a human being, and then read the Fourteenth Amendment and look at the word that was changed in the the, the second um, the Fourteenth Amendment. And when you look at that Fourteenth Amendment, you realize all they did was remove the three fifth clause to make so all Americans, all Americans free, because slavery had ended. Because otherwise, the South would maintain the power in Congress. So, yes, American history is there, but it's also not there for you to live in the past. You have to live now in the future. I came here as an immigrant. Look at my skin color. Do you think the racists care if I'm an immigrant or not? And whether they like me or not, it doesn't matter because I am going to do what my parents taught me to do. Embrace God. Embrace family. Embrace education. Embrace hard work. Those are the, those are the, the recipe to succeed in America. Not bloodline, not skin color, not political connection. None of those things. All so, reasons why folks should support you in your run for Congress, Claston. All right, we've got time for one more, uh, one more, and here it is. Okay, this is a D plus 25 district, and for folks that don't know what that means, that means it's a heavily Democrat district, but a Republican has won here uh, in this district. Uh, Representative Joseph Gao is a Republican out of the uh, Vietnamese-American community there. Uh, that has won. So uh, this district is entirely winnable, but their question is, okay, how are you going to win? What's your path to victory? My path to victory. I'm not running as, yeah, I'm a Republican, but I'm not running as a Democrat or a Republican. I'm running on conservative principles. See, we come polarized by the D and the R. I'm a conservative. And I know they're Blacks who value conservatism, they value God, they value family, they value education, they value excellence, they value hard work. Those are the people I'm talking to. You can tell me D plus whatever you want to tell me. I don't see Democrats. I see people I'm talking to people. That's why they just give people a chance to be people that's what that's who i'm talking to i'm not trying to talk to democrats i'm not trying to talk to republicans i'm talking to americans because well meaning american no matter what their color no matter what the color is cares about americans well-being and that's what i'm appealing to i'm not appealing to no democrats or republicans how can you make this about Democrats or Republicans when people are suffering? That's a great How can we question. do that? That's a great question that needs to be answered by a lot of folks that have been in politics for decades uh, that, uh, that ignore that question. When people are suffering, how can you make this, uh, these elections about partisan hackery uh, and things like that that we've been seeing the last uh, three or four decades. It's just incredibly bad. Uh, and the results show that. The results yes. show that, my friend. Uh, so 
uh, as we wrap up here at Claston, tell folks where they can find you on all the social media, and most importantly, where can you go donate? Because folks, this man needs your help. The only way he can get his, the only thing he needs is to get his message to the right numbers of people and get them to the polls, and that takes dollars. And dollars is what he needs. So listen to what he says or where you can find uh, out about his message and where you can donate. Claston, go ahead. You can go to my website, bernardforcongress.com. Look, we need your donation. You can find me on Twitter at Claston B. You can find me on Facebook at um, Claston Bernard. But again, um, you can go vote early. Vote for me on March 6th. My ballot number is number three. Vote for Claston Bernard. Go to bernardforcongress.com. Share my videos. Share my story. Um, tell your friends. Encourage your friends to, to donate to my campaign. This is, this is a great American story. This is a great team to be a part of. This is another Rocky, Rocky um, move moment. We have to rally behind Louisiana. It is time to rally Louisiana. Louisiana made me a champion. I will work hard to champion Louisiana in Washington, D.C. And if you send me to Washington, you will not be disappointed. So go to BernardForCongress.com, share my story, like, donate, and March 6th, early vote, March 20th, I need you to get out and vote. I look forward to you guys for your support, okay? Thank you, Claston, for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, good luck and stay safe, my friend. Our prayers are with you, and most importantly, our efforts are going to be with you. And I, I think everybody that saw this and sees this video will say, this is a man that we've got to have uh, working for the people of Louisiana and working for the country, really, uh, to set some things right uh, in, a, in a way that has nothing to do with whether you're a D or an R. Take care, yes. my friend. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Well, folks, that was Claston Bernard, a congressional candidate for uh, Congressional District 2 to replace Cedric Richmond uh, in uh, the great state of Louisiana. And uh, he is a man that is not just driven, but is wholeheartedly in belief of the American idea of life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm Rob Manus. And I'll see you next week on The Rob Mana Show.